think I've only ever fallen asleep once in a church service, not here, uh, although I have come close on a number of occasions, I have to confess. When I was a kid, church could sometimes be incredibly boring, maybe some of you identify with that, and I have to confess that even as an adult, sometimes I have found church a little bit boring. Um, and if you combine being bored with being tired and with a warm and a stuffy room, you end up with a literally fatal uh, mixture. And in the passage that we're studying today, we have a young man called Eutychus, who was probably between the ages of about 12 and 14, who fell asleep in church, and it had fatal consequences because he fell out of the window and died outside in the courtyard. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and uh, The book of Acts is the account of how the church began and spread in the first century uh, of the church. And last week we saw how Paul and his team have been preaching, they've been teaching in Ephesus, and they run into opposition, serious opposition, so they decided to move on. And today's section follows on immediately after that incident. So let's look at Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 and verses 1 to 12. And you can just listen if you want as I read it uh, to you. So Acts 21 to 12, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe. Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Paul had spent a few months in Greece, during which he wrote the book of Romans, and then he returned back to Troas, which was a port in what we would now know as uh, northwestern Turkey. And Luke writes that on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Now, all the verses are on your outline, so on the back of your notice sheet, all the verses are there, and there's a few other points that we're going to look at as well if you want to use that, if you find it helpful. So on the first day of the week, in other words, on a Sunday, they came together with the other Christians in Troas to break bread, in other words, to take communion together, as we're going to do a little bit later on in the service. It was Sunday evening, because unlike uh, today, Sunday wasn't a day off, and the people would have been at work all day, and, and there's a good chance that Perhaps well over half of the people in this church were actually slaves anyways. They had no choice. They had to work all day. So after a whole full day of work, they came together to worship God, to take communion, and to listen to Paul teach. And they met in what was probably someone's private home on the uh, uh, second story, the, the, the third story, the second floor. And even though the room had windows that were open because it was... Uh, It was pretty hot, even though the windows were open, it was dark outside, and so they had lots of oil lamps to give them light. But the problem with these oil lamps was that they would give off fumes. 
and the fumes will cause drowsiness. And that's what happened to poor old, to poor old Eutychus. Look at verses 8 and 9. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. I love the way that Luke says Paul talked on and on. In fact, Luke says that he talked till midnight. So I never want to hear another complaint about lengthy sermons here at Regent Chapel, okay? because you're all going to be home by at the latest one o'clock. So the combination of tiredness, the, the heat in the room, the fumes of the old lamps, and maybe even, dare I say it, Paul might have been a little bit boring that evening, we don't know. It meant that Eutychus fell asleep, and he fell out of the window from the third story to the ground and died. He was killed by this fall, as you'd expect. What a nightmare church service. Paul preaching still at midnight, and then this poor guy dies tragically in the church service. But it didn't end there. Look at verses 10 to 12. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Paul lay on top of Eutychus' dead body, and as he did so, God miraculously brought Eutychus back to life. This was an amazing miracle. And what Paul was doing was following in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha about 800 years earlier, who were prophets in Israel. And they had both done something very similar. When somebody had died, they both laid on top of the individual, and God supernaturally brought the person miraculously back to life. So what on earth are we to make of this? I mean, it would be tempting this morning to say three points from this sermon. Don't have church in the evening. Don't sit near a window and don't preach till midnight or don't meet in a second story. That, that would be a, probably an, an, an inaccurate but an easy way of uh, preaching on this passage. It's also tempting and, and, and certainly convenient, it would be a lot easier for me this morning, believe me, to refer to this as a miracle that just occurred in history, performed by a unique one-off kind of individual at a unique time and, and kind of consign it to that. We, we tell it to the kids, don't we, in Sunday school as a story. We believe it's true, but we tell it as a story al- alongside the accounts of Elijah and Elisha. And then if we do it that way, we, we can just kind of treat it as an exciting Sunday school story. But I don't think to do that this morning really does this passage justice. As much as it might be more convenient to us theologically, practically, and and certainly for me this morning, it would be convenient to do that with this passage and consign it to history and maybe just learn a few moral tales or something like that. But I don't think this passage allows us to do that. I think the Bible allows it to do that. What happens in this passage is nothing less than a man brought back to life who had very definitely died. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is a doctor. Luke witnessed this. Luke said he was dead, and now he was alive. God performed a miracle that night in Troas. But, God, but does God still perform miracles today? That's what I've given the, the title of this morning. Does God still perform miracles today? Is this just a nice story from history? Or is this encouraging us to do the same kind of thing today and and to look for God to work miraculously today? Well, in a nutshell, I think actually it's both. It is a historical account. It is a kind of a unique part of history, uh, God's program through history. It does contain unique elements to it. This was the Apostle Paul. We're not the Apostle Paul. He was a a unique leader in the church working at a particular time in church history. So it is true that that this is unique and perhaps special. But I do also believe it's giving us an example still to follow today. We should expect 
and look for God to perform miracles in the 21st century in Great Britain. And the reason I believe that is for two reasons. Firstly, a careful study of the New Testament shows that miracles are expected to be performed in and through regular Christians like you and me today. It would be convenient if the Bible didn't teach that, but I don't think the Bible allows us to take that position. And secondly, because I know personally, and and I know perhaps some of you do as well, people who have been miraculously healed. I know one guy uh, back in Hereford where we were for eight years who had a withered leg like that from birth, and he was prayed for on a church service, and his leg grew there and then in that church service. Uncontrovertible proof. We live in the West, and we, we live in a culture, don't we, where science and rationality trumps everything. We worship those things. So that even though as Christians we say, or we often say, that we do believe that God can do miracles, in reality or in practice we probably don't really believe it. Because our actions demonstrate what we really think. Our theology is nice in our heads, but if it doesn't lead to actions, it probably means we don't really believe something. We're, after, we're often actually very, very cynical and dismissive of anything that has any kind of miraculous claim to it. And I do think it's right, absolutely, that we should uh, treat with great caution claims of miracles or, or miraculous things happening. We should be very discerning. We should check these things out. We shouldn't just accept or believe everything we hear. Far from it. But we do also, I believe, need a cultural shift in, in the church in the UK where we just dismiss everything which we hear which is miraculous and doesn't quite fit into our nice cosy box of what we would like to happen, and where we move from being very cynical and very negative to being much more expectant of what God can do, does do, and is doing in the world today. So what is a miracle? Well, Wayne Grudem helpfully gives us this definition. He says, a miracle is a less common kind of of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. So a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. You know, we say things like, well, every time a baby's born, that's a miracle. Well, with respect, that isn't, because babies are born every second and miracles don't happen every second. A miracle, by definition, is a less common or, in fact, a very rare kind of God's activity. So a miracle isn't a baby being born. Amazing though that is, that isn't a miracle. And a miracle isn't God working through doctors and and medicines. We should give thanks for them and we should use them. Luke, who wrote this passage, was a doctor. But they don't perform miracles. A miracle is something that God does that is out of the ordinary, that causes people to be in awe and wonder at God's greatness. Just like this man who came back to life. And as as I read that... I don't think we should expect to see miracles every day. A miracle, by, by definition, is something that is a less common kind of God's activity. We, we shouldn't expect to see that every day. It's not normal. That's why it's a miracle. But we should nevertheless expect to see them and pray for them. So what is the point of miracles? Why do they happen? Well, if you look through the Bible, I think we can identify five reasons. And I've put alongside each one on your outline some Bible references if you want to check out what I'm saying uh, perhaps in your own time later. Firstly, the first purpose uh, in the Bible of a miracle is to authenticate the message of the gospel. Miracles in the New Testament were often performed to show that the gospel was true and as a result on numerous occasions it said people believed the, the word of the Lord because of what they'd seen, because of the miraculous signs and wonders they'd seen. Secondly, miracles are to bear witness that the kingdom of God has come 
and has begun to expand its beneficial results into people's lives. And this is one of the key reasons, theologically, why I believe the age of miracles is very much alive and well. Part of the reason that's given in the New Testament for miracles is to show that the kingdom of God has arrived. We are in a new age. The kingdom is among you, says Jesus. It is here. It has arrived. And it's, and it's demonstrated by the miraculous. And the kingdom of God is still here. And it grows every time somebody puts their faith and trust in Jesus and acknowledges him as their king. And this age of the miraculous, the, the future age, is breaking through into the age in which we live. We live in the now and the not yet, and in the tension of these two worlds. The kingdom of God is breaking in and is growing and developing. And they've seen that in the kingdom parables that Jesus tells. Thirdly, miracles are to help those in need. At a very basic level, m- miracles meet a very basic need when people are ill or disabled or dying or when they have perhaps some other need. Miracles aren't just confined to healing, of course. And God loves to give good gifts to his people. So God often, or or sometimes through miracles, it is to help people who have a basic need. Fourthly, it removes hindrances to people's ministries. When people are healed, they're able to get on and serve God, whereas perhaps their illness might mean that they couldn't serve as they wanted to, and it's restricting what they can do. But then through a miracle, and if that miracle is healing, it frees them up to get on with the serving uh, of God that they feel called to do. And lastly, and most importantly, miracles are to bring glory to God. And we should be deeply suspicious of anything that detracts from that or seems to be drawing attention to people, whether it's the healed or the healer. The the glory of God should be the, the greatest aim of all of our lives. That is what everything is about, is about bringing God glory. And it should be our main motive whenever we're seeking to see a miracle happen. And as I say, we should be really wary of anything that makes a celebrity out of the person who is healed or, or experiences some kind of miraculous activity or the person through whom God performs that miracle. Now, one of the objections that, that people have often with this kind of thing is that Paul, who it was Paul who performed this miracle, and of course, Paul was one of the apostles. He was a kind of a one-off. And that, of course, is true. The, the apostles in the New Testament were a unique group of men. God had invested a unique amount of power and authority in them that, that nobody alive today has. And whilst there might be people who today have an apostolic kind of gift and role, kind of a regional role of leading churches and so on, the apostles of the New Testament, apostles with a capital A, were a, a different, a, a kind of a unique group of people on which, the, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles. So if we just read about Paul or Peter's miracles, which we do about in Acts, we could easily deduce that miracles were, uh, such as healing, were only performed by the apostles and then conveniently kind of write them off for today. And it's certainly true that they, the apostles seem to have had a greater concentration of, of, mirac- of, the mir- of the miraculous around them, and they did belong to a unique period of time in one sense. However, that doesn't account for numerous other parts of the New Testament, significant parts of the New Testament, which teach that everyday Christians like you and me today are also given the ability to perform miracles, including healing. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 11. Paul writes this, now, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. 
All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth, church that in our passage today he had just come from, in actual fact. And there weren't any apostles in Corinth. So Paul isn't addressing apostles, he's addressing regular church members like you and me. He was very clearly writing to ordinary Christians like you and me, and he's teaching that the Holy Spirit gives special and new abilities, we call these spiritual gifts, to people when they're saved or after they're saved. They include non-miraculous, non-supernatural gifts, things like administration and teaching and, and giving and so on, but they also include these miraculous, these supernatural gifts, which Paul lists here in this passage. And although some people teach that these supernatural gifts ceased when the Bible was complete, when the apostles died, I don't think the Bible really teaches that. And it's certainly not a position we as elders would take here at Regent. Paul also wrote to the church in Galatia and he said this, So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So once again Paul is writing to regular church members, a church where there were no apostles, and he's not limiting the supernatural powers of the Holy Spirit to apostles like him and Peter. He's saying that there are miraculous things working among you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this was happening, this was normal in the New Testament church. So the New Testament writers seem to very much assume that God will work through everyday Christians like you and me and perform miracles including uh, healing. And nowhere in the New Testament does it say that miracles will cease. If you can find a verse, I'll happily discuss it with you, but I can't find anything that says that. Or that miracles are only for a temporary period. In fact, it actually says quite the opposite. And if we look at James 5, 14 to 16, we see that James expected both church leaders and church members to pray for healing and to see healings happen. Look at what he says. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, They will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, there's lots more we could say about James 5, and there's lots more going on there. But I think that at the very least, we can see from James 5 and from 1 Corinthians 12 and Galatians that the apostles themselves expected miracles and the miraculous and healing to be part of church life. So the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, including Uh, working miracles and seeing people healed are intended, I believe, to be for the church today. They weren't just performed by the apostles. We can see that from the New Testament. And there's nothing in the New Testament which says these things have ceased. So why don't we see them today? Why don't we see this kind of thing happening today? Well, I think actually we do. I know quite a number of people who have experienced supernatural healing and miraculous events brought about by prayer. And sometimes not brought by prayer and just supernaturally, sovereignly God intervening in situations. But it is true that we don't see them very often. It is true that we don't see them very often. But why? Well, well, partly because they're miracles. And the very definition of a miracle is that it's out of the ordinary. It's not an everyday occurrence. And if we look at the New Testament, we can see that miracles didn't happen every day then either. Even when Paul and Peter and co. are at their height of their activities, miracles aren't happening every day. Paul healed some people, but he doesn't seem to have done this very often, actually, if you look through Luke, uh, through Luke's account in Acts. He raised Eutychus from the dead in our passage today, but there's no record of him ever doing that with anybody else at any other time in the New Testament. 
If you look at 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul writes these words. He says, Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. So Paul didn't or couldn't heal Trophimus, so he left him sick in Miletus. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead, but he didn't or couldn't heal Trophimus. We don't know what was going on there. We don't know why. We just have that statement. So clearly, Paul didn't heal everybody, and Peter didn't heal everybody, and this wasn't an everyday occurrence, but it was happening. Paul himself died, of course, and even when he was alive, he pleaded with God to take away some kind of debility he had. He calls it his thorn in the flesh, but God didn't do that. So God is not some kind of slot machine that we can just, you know, kind of put a coin in, pull a lever, and out comes what we're looking for. It doesn't work like that. God is not like this. We can and we should step out in faith and pray to God to perform miracles and heal people, which is perhaps amongst those miracles, but God won't always do what we want. And that's because God's plans are often different to our plans. There's often things that we would like to happen, and often those plans or our desires are not in line with God's, and that's one of the reasons why God doesn't always respond in the way that, we're gonna, that we would like him to. And there's often far more going on in situations that we're involved with than we realize, because we only see the immediate need or problem or situation, and there's much more going on that is unseen or in other lives or things perhaps down the line years later we see and it makes more sense. And there's other things that we just won't understand until we get to heaven and are finally with Jesus. It seems that there are six responses to our requests for God to heal people. I'm, I'm particularly kind of honing in on healing rather than just the wider miraculous. And I just want to look at six responses that, that God gives, it seems to me, when we pray for healing. And I've listed them on your outline. Firstly, there's no change at all. So we pray, we pray in faith, and nothing happens for whatever reason. Secondly, we pray, we might pray in great faith, and it seems that we're called to wait. And we sense that God is going to heal, maybe God ha- we feel that God has promised to heal, but it's not yet. Maybe this morning you're in that position. Thirdly, sometimes the person actually gets worse. We pray and they deteriorate. And then fourthly, and I know this has happened with some people, that the person immediately dies. And then fifthly, sometimes there's partial improvement. We see a kind of example of that where Jesus laid hands on the blind man and he, he began to see people walking around as trees. Then Jesus did the same thing again and then he could see properly. So sometimes there's partial improvement or gradual improvement. God doesn't do it always instantly in the way that we would like. And again, God's at work in that and there's reasons for that that we don't always understand. And then sixthly, God says yes and we do see instant healing. And all of those are responses that we see and experience when we step out in faith great risk to ourselves perhaps at time but when we step out of faith and ask God to heal people when God says yes and heals someone what what we're witnessing is a miracle so it's not going to happen all the time it's probably not even going to happen that often but it can and it does happen one of the reasons I think we see so few miracles is because we don't ask we've bought into the rationalistic materialistic scientific western mindset that's so utterly uh, runs through all our minds often without our realizing it. So we don't ask because we don't really believe that God can do this. Or, or we, we kind of do, but we don't. 
And we simply don't believe that God will do the miraculous, so we never even really ask. We, we, we pray, you know, we pray for the person, but we never get around to praying for healing. And that might be the right thing to do. Sometimes we might sense really that, that it isn't God's plan. We don't feel any calling to pray for healing for this person. But more often, I think, is that we, we, we just don't really believe. And I guess my aim this morning, I'm trying to think through this, this passage, I would have, believe me, really quite happily not preached this sermon this morning. It would have been so much easier and more convenient to have ignored this. But I, I guess my aim this morning is to try to encourage us to really believe God for more than we do. My, my passion this morning is that, that each one of us would have a greater view and vision of who God is. And not keep him in a box and, and make our God too small. That we would have a, a greater sense and view of who God is. However, sometimes, or perhaps normally, God chooses not to heal someone, otherwise it wouldn't be a miracle. And when that happens, we mustn't fall into the trap of believing that it's because of a lack of faith. That can be a very cruel, cruel thing to teach and say and believe. Yes, we do need to have more faith, and this is the kind of paradox, I guess. And we need to enlarge our view of who God is. We need to be bolder and ask God for bigger and and greater things, and not just, if it's your will, Lord, kind of prayers. But when we step out in faith, and for whatever reason God chooses to say no to our prayers, we mustn't fall into the trap of saying, well, it's because I didn't have enough faith. Some of you will know that my oldest brother, Neil, died of a brain tumor uh, nine years ago this Friday, at the age of 43. Now, I'm just going to read this bit. Neil believed that God would heal him, and Claire and I also believed that God would heal him. And not just because we wanted to, because he was my brother, although that obviously played a major part in it. When I found that Neil had been given only a few years to live, I began to pray for him to be healed. Who wouldn't if it was your brother? But as I prayed during those three years, I came across this account in Acts 20. And I began to have the sense that I would one day find myself doing exactly what Paul did to Eutychus. Now, I've only ever shared this with a few people. And if I'm honest, I don't really want to share it this morning. It's incredibly painful. And I don't think, but I don't think I can preach on this passage with integrity and not share this. I think maybe one or two people in this room are aware of this, but most people wouldn't be. So despite lots of faith, all-night prayer vigils, and many people praying with great faith for Neil, he eventually died and went to be with Jesus on the 4th of July, 2008. And my cousin Pam, who was with Neil as he died, along with Neil's wife and Claire's mum, she, she, she phoned me to tell me that Neil had died at home about half an hour earlier that day. And so I got into my car, I drove down to London, it was a long journey, partly to be with Neil's wife and kids, and partly because I believed that God was not yet done with this situation. And when I arrived at my brother's house later that evening, I sat outside the house for a little bit trying to collect my thoughts, and Claire phoned me, and she'd just been reading her own Bible, uh, the verses in her reading schedule that day were from, of all places, James 5. So we concluded that as crazy as it might sound or seem, and you may dismiss me as a crank or a loony this morning, but as crazy as it might sound or seem, that I should go into the house and do exactly what Paul did with Eutychus. I didn't want to. I was terrified and, uh, and very afraid. And so when I went into the house, I went in with great fear and trepidation. And after greeting my family, I asked my sister-in-law if I could do what the Apostle Paul did, and, and, and she agreed. And so I asked everyone to leave the house and go into the garden. 
And I asked another man who I knew was a man of great faith to stay with me and to pray with me. And in what might seem to you a bizarre and a crazy thing to do, with my sister-in-law's permission and in faith following Elijah, Elisha and Paul's example, I lay on top of my brother's body and prayed that God would raise him from the dead. But despite my prayers and faith, God didn't do that. So I got up, I knelt by his dead body and said out loud the words of Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we called the undertaker, they came, they took Neil's body away and that was that. I had stepped out in faith because I believed and still believe that God still performs miracles today. But God didn't perform a miracle that day. And there were and are perhaps many reasons why God didn't and I have to trust and submit to his sovereignty and that he knows best. But I still believe that God performs miracles today and I would still consider doing the same thing again, even though it was one of the hardest and most painful things I've ever done. One of the, the things that helped me after my brother died was the account of the fiery furnace. Uh, the, the men are thrown into the, fire of the fiery furnace and the verse in Daniel says this, come up on the screen for us. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Stepping out in faith, confident that God will act, but determined to still do the same thing, even if God does not act because it honors God. Now, I want to be really, really clear that I don't think God normally raises the dead. I don't think that. I don't even think he normally heals people. That's why they're called miracles. But I do believe that God is still busy performing miracles all over the world today. It's what the Bible teaches and it's what is happening. And we're so hampered by our Western worldview and we rationalize everything and we leave little room for God to be at work in the miraculous. Now God is not a slot machine. There is no magical formula. Nevertheless, we can't escape the fact that the Bible teaches that God performs miracles today through ordinary people like you and me, even though it didn't happen on that day with my brother. And so we need to enlarge our view of who God is and step out in faith more and pray bigger prayers than we often do, even when that's really risky to our pride and our reputation. Claire and I staked a lot when we stepped out and reputationally doesn't, it didn't sound great. We sounded like cranks. We probably, you, we, you may think we are this morning. But I guess what I'm seeking to do this morning is to try and shift our thinking so that our view of God is a bigger one than the one that we have. So that we step out in faith much more than we normally do and that in faith we pray for greater things than we currently see and experience. And there's great risk when we do that because God may say no. And we need to acknowledge God's sovereignty and that there is much mystery around prayer and miracles that we just simply don't understand and don't know. There is no magical formula. But James says this, you do not have because you do not ask God. And it's no wonder that we rarely ever see miracles if we never ask God to do miraculous things. If our view of God is is limited, then it will limit what we ask of him, which in turn will often limit what he does. So I'm not saying this morning that every time someone dies, we should pray for them to come come back to life. We do all have to die at some point. It would perhaps be an exceptional situation that we felt called to do that or to step out in faith like that. 
And I'm not saying that we should pray for everyone to be healed, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't use our wonderful NHS, but I am saying that God is bigger and more powerful than we could ever imagine. And I want to encourage each one of us to have a bigger vision of who God is. And I want to encourage each one of us to be bolder in our prayers, to step out in faith, even when there is great risk to be bolder in our prayers, to, to step out in faith, even though it's risky, and even though God may say no. Paul says these words in Ephesians 3, and with this, hand over to the band. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever Amen. That's not just a nice twee verse to, to learn in Sunday school. Do we believe it? That God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. The power that is at work within us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And to him be the glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen.